Welcome to Cross Lane Community Church, where we are committed to bringing people to Jesus. We hope you enjoy this online message. This car is beautiful. It's fast, it's sleek, it's got gorgeous rims, nice lines, leather interior, big engine. But what every car needs is a driver. 2,000 years ago, before Jesus came, the driver in the lives of men and women was the law of sin and death. It drove everything. Then Jesus showed up and changed all the rules. And once he came along and died on the cross, it became about grace and forgiveness, which is power for living for you and for me. This car makes 600 horsepower and not a whole lot of time. Jesus does that for life. So we can stop trying to overcome things in our own power. We now have the power of the cross on our side. Power for living, RPM. If you have a pen, you want to take it out. And if you've got your Bible, I mean, obviously the pen and the Bible are going to work together. Um, turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 is considered by most theologians uh, Paul's greatest work. It's considered the Mona Lisa of all of his writings. It's the, you know, it's the, it's the, the finest. It's the one that everybody points to and says, man, there's just great stuff in Romans 8. We're only going to look at four verses this morning, but what powerful four verses they are. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and I'm going to have you circle some things and write in your margins, your Bible, and if you're new to that, it's okay. It's okay. Um, I really don't think God minds if you write in the notes of your, write notes in the side of your Bible if it's going to help you remember something he said. I think he would say, rock on. That's great. So um, do that. Get your Bible and pen ready. Romans chapter 8. One of the things that probably bugs you about religion, bugs me, is that religious people are not just content to simply believe what they believe. They're not really happy until you know, everybody believes like they do and, and they tend to think that what they believe is the only way to believe and that what everybody else believes is wrong. And does that get on your nerves a little bit? Does, do you, you know, if, if, even if you're the kind of person that is a religious person, I would imagine that, that people that are that way would be kind of an irritant. They certainly are to me. I don't like people like that. It's okay that you believe what you believe and and, you know, some, some people think, well, it's, I'm right and you're wrong and, and don't confuse me with the facts. Um, how many of you, like at, at Christmas time in your house, not, I'm not talking about your immediate family, I'm talking about your extended family. When you come together for Christmas time with your extended family, you're not supposed to, you can't talk about religion, right? It's a divisive thing to talk about religion. It's like, you know, somebody says, oh, don't bring that up. There's two things that when I get together at my house, with all my family at Christmas time that we typically don't talk a whole lot about. One is religion, although most of my family are Christians, not all of them, certainly, and, and, uh, but they're not anti, necessarily. Um, so religion isn't quite as an anathema of a subject, but it's religion and politics, right? I mean, politics, real bad. You don't want to talk about politics around my family, especially me when I go home. It's just not a, a happy, fun time. But... Um, you know, families kind of do that thing where they can talk about certain things, but there's other things that are off limits. And many times, for many families, religion is one of those things that are, that are off limits. 
Um, and not only can people be dogmatic about it, not only can we be dogmatic and cruel sometimes, um, but we, we can be dogmatic to the point that we express things that our Christian values really don't represent. We, we can get so bad that, that sometimes we, we say things or we'll do things in a way that our Christian faith would not really embrace. And then there's the other extreme, and maybe you're in this camp, maybe you fall into this camp, is the extreme of it doesn't really matter what religion you are, just pick one and stick with it because ultimately all religions are going to lead you to the same place, which is God anyway. And some people really think that that's really the truth. And so, um, you know, if you're a devoutly religious person, whether it's Islam or Judaism or, or Christianity or Buddhism or whatever is your ilk, these people would say, well, you just need to pick your thing and you need to just, you know, pick your lane and stay in your lane. It's kind of like being on the interstate during construction, right? Pick your lane, stay in your lane. And, and don't change lanes. Um, the problem with that is that an Orthodox Jew or a, a, a Christian or a, a, a Buddhist or a Muslim, um, the Catholics, the Hindus, they, they would say, no, that's not necessary. No, that's not, that's not the truth. Because you pick any of these religions and they would say, well, it's easy for you on the outside to look at it that way, to say that all religions are the same. But if you knew what I know and believe what I believe, you would realize that there are some big differences and it's just not that simple. You just can't say that, that all religions aren't the same and they don't all point to the same direction. And consequently, we're all dogmatic and we all fuss and fight and we all, uh, you know, non-religious people think that the whole thing is just ridiculous, right? If, you, if you're a person that doesn't really go to church and you're here today just because somebody dragged you along, you might be thinking, man, all religious people are that way and they all drive me crazy. Can I just tell you that religious people drive me crazy too? So there. Um, here's the interesting thing. The interesting thing is that there are some things that overlap in almost all religions. Now, that's, that may surprise you, but we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. Certainly all major world religions. We're going we're to talk about, you, you could come up with a list of, of nine versions of the golden rule. There's, there's at least nine different versions. I'm going to give you, there's one for Christianity, one for Judaism, one for Islam, one for Hinduism, one for Buddhism, Confucianism. There's one for Aristotle and one for Plato. Here's the, here's the Muslim version. I'm not going to give you all of those, but here's just a couple. Here's the Muslim version of the golden rule. You ready? No one of you is a believer until he loves for his brother what he loves for himself. Here's Aristotle. We should behave to our friends as we wish our friends to behave to us. Plato. May I do to others as they should do unto me. Judaism, what you hate, do not do to anyone. There is kind of a, a crossover effect that goes on with the major religions in terms of the, the things that, that we have in common, the oughts and the ought-nots. There are certain things that we ought to do, and there are certain things that we ought not to do, and, and basically all world religions kind of hold a, a, set value, a set of those values up and say these are things that you shouldn't do. C.S. Lewis is a great Christian thinker and, and author um, who came to Christ later in his life. He put a book together uh, called The Abolition of Man. And in that book, he looked at the different thou shalts and thou shalt nots. And he looked at the different religions of the world, including the American Indians. And he said that there are basically eight commandments that you could boil all of religion down pretty much to eight commandments and, and I want to give you these eight. Now, these eight are, are, are the basic common ground 
of, of religion. It doesn't mean that we all believe the same thing. I'm not suggesting that if you, you know, that us and, and uh, Hindus or us and Muslims are going to end up at the same place at the end of this journey. I'm just simply saying that we have more in common with other world religions than you might think, and I'm going to try and show you that here with the, this list of eight things. Because what you believe, many of them believe. And what you're against, many times, they are also against. So we do have some common ground. There is overlap, and I want to give you these eight things to, eight things to start our conversation today. We're going to put this, this list on the wall for you. <clears throat> Number one, don't harm others with word or deed. Number two, honor your parents. Number three, be kind to siblings and the elderly. Number four, be honest in all your dealings. Number five, don't lie. Number six, don't have sex with another person's spouse. Number seven, care for those who are weaker. And number eight, put others first. Now there may, may be more. You may be able to think of more that span across the various religions. If you can, congratulations, because you're smarter than C.S. Lewis, and that's not easy. But, but maybe you can think of more than that. Now not only are there some oughts and ought nots, um, the other thing that they have in common is that the adherents of these religions are not necessarily consistent in following all the rules to their religion. That's true of all of us. That in every religion, every sect, every cult, every uh, group of people that calls themselves religious, everyone that gathers around an idea, there's, there's, there's something that there's failure. And the reason we know this is because if you start to look at any world religion, what you'll find is they, they begin to address the failure of the adherence of whatever religion that's in question. So what we have in religion is that everyone has some oughts and ought nots, and these are where they kind of overlap, and these are the major ones. And what we have in all these major world religions is here's the, the, the ought not do this, and we don't want and, and we don't want to do that. And here's what we all agree on that is major and important and good for society and culture, and we're not good at them. I said last week, we Christians tell you right up front, these are the things we're going to try not to do, yet these are the things we really like to do and want to do, um, and, and yet we place them out of bounds. And it kind of, it's just a, there's a tension in that. So let's do an experiment here. I want, to, I want to leave this list up for a minute. I want to kind of work down through this list. How many of you, I want you to participate with me, okay? So get your arms ready, because you're going to raise your hand. How many of you have harmed others with word or deed? You've harmed others with word or deed, okay. How many of you would say, yes, there were times I disobeyed my parents? Yes, so there were times. How many of you would say that, that there were times you weren't very kind to your siblings and maybe even the elderly? I, I haven't always been, okay, okay. How many of you would say, I have not always been honest in my dealings? And about now, you're looking at that list, and you're saying, uh-oh, uh-oh, we're, we're coming up on some things I'm not sure I want to get into. Uh-oh. How many of you would say, I haven't always in my life told the truth? Uh-oh, uh-oh. How many of you know someone? How many of you have seen a movie about somebody that did something with someone other than their spouse? The point is, the point is, that's a list of eight things that span all world religions, 
And most of us raised our hands for most of those things. We don't do it very well. We say, this is what we're going to do, and yet the common ground for all religious people is you ought not to do that, but you did it anyway, and now you're at odds with God. The common ground is you ought not to do it, and you did it anyway, and according to some world religions, and some that are not so major, now you have a problem with God. This is a universal message of religion, but... You don't even have to be religious to understand this. Because we talked about this the very first week. Many people uh, maybe don't go to church and don't consider themselves religious, but they have a standard of behavior for their own life. And if you ask them, do you constantly live up to the standard of behavior that you have set for your life, the answer would be, no, I don't. That, that if you said, have you ever disappointed yourself? Have you ever done something and thought to yourself, you know, I'm disappointed in me for, for doing that. I, 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 I thought better of me. I thought I could do better. The answer would be yes. I, I, I have, I've probably done some things. I've probably let myself down. Uh, all of us have, have known, not because we were religious or went to church, that, that we shouldn't tell a lie or that we shouldn't take something that didn't belong to us or that we shouldn't mistreat somebody. We all knew when we were little that we weren't supposed to hit our sister, but that didn't keep us from doing it. We all knew that we weren't supposed to lie to mama, but that didn't keep us from doing it. We all knew there was stuff that we shouldn't do, but that didn't keep us from doing it. And we didn't need to go to church for anybody to tell us that. We knew it was wrong. All of us understand that there are some oughts and ought nots, and regardless of whether you're a religious person or, or even believe in God, you know that you have fallen short either of your own standard of behavior or you have fallen short of God's standard of behavior. You may have been carrying guilt for a long time and you may have tried a couple of different religious systems to address your particular guilt to make it go away, to make yourself somehow feel better. You may have tried all kinds of things and maybe you're not even a religious person at all and your guilt is big because you did something big and bad and it just won't leave you alone. You can't forget it. And you know it's bad. And you've tried to talk yourself into believing that it wasn't that bad. And then we all have this statement that we like to say. This is a common statement among the human Race, it's one of the things that you've heard said all the time. Well, nobody's perfect. I'm only human. And now you're drinking too much or you're medicating or you're working too hard or you're trying to you know, make your guilt go away because you're, you're trying to serve somehow or you're trying to give money somehow or you're involved in all these different causes or whatever because somehow you think that's going to make your guilt go away and you're carrying some major guilt and your conscience is bothering you and you don't know what to do about it. Well, welcome to the world of the religious because that is the message of religion. All religion. There are some oughts and ought nots and we're not good at them. There are some things that uh, put us at odds with God and, and, or maybe we don't even believe in God but yet we find ourselves today at odds with ourselves because we don't like what we've done we feel this guilt and we can't make it go away we can't do anything about what we've done wrong and it bugs us it bothers us you want to go back and you want to be a great parent but you can't go back and parent your 14 year old because now they're 25 and you, and you said some things and you did some things and you messed it up and you'd give anything to be able to go back and reparent but it's too late you want to go back and be a better employee but it's too late you would give anything to have that day back that you made the mistake that you made that you said the thing that you said that you took the thing you took or whatever 
But now it's too late and you can't go back. You'd give anything to be able to not have cheated on your first uh, husband or your first wife, but it's too late now. It's water under the bridge, but you can't go back, but it's bugged you every day of your life. And it's one of those things that you simply cannot change. It's the plight of religion. You ought not to have, but you did, and now you feel guilty. You shouldn't have done that, but you did it, and now you've got this big guilt thing hanging around your neck. What do you do with that? Because guilt is real, and a conscience is real. Our conscience is telling us the truth. We messed up. We fell short. What do you do with it? That is the question that all religion brings us to. All religion. Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism. The question that the human experience brings us to is what do I do with my past? What do I do with my failure? How do I get beyond this? How do I move past it? How can I forget? How can I make it go away? This is the universal experience. This is why when Jesus showed up on the planet, the announcement was, I bring you good news of great joy to whom? All men. Not just the Jews. Not just the people who were alive at that particular time. Not just the people who were in that particular region of the world. I bring you good news to all men, whether you're a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Confucianist or a Taoist or you're, a, you know, you're a, a Navajo Indian dropping peyote buttons on the Indian reservation in Arizona, a Christian, it doesn't matter. I bring you good news. The arrival of Jesus was very good news for all people of all religions, all faiths, all tongues, all tribes, all inclusive. Because the pressing question for the human soul is, what do I do about me? my past, my mistakes, my sins, my inability to live up to my own standards, much less God's standards. And the revolutionary message of Jesus, that message for all mankind, is that he came to offer the solution to the problem that all religion creates, which is, now what? Now what? I know what I can do going forward. I can try to be perfect going forward. I just will just point out to you that we didn't have a very good track record up until this point in our lives on the list on the wall. Doubt we're going to have a very good record going forward with the list on the wall. But you can try. But it still doesn't change that what's going on in your past still bugs you, still gets in the way. It's still a problem. And when Jesus showed up, his message was really simple. It was revolutionary. It was, cha- it was life-changing. And this is why at the end of his ministry, he didn't gather a bunch of people and say, now, go tell this just to the Jews. That's not what he said. You know, they're they're the ones that got the Ten Commandments. They're going to understand this. Nobody else is going to get this. Jesus didn't say, just go tell this to the Jews. It's not what he said. He said, I want you to go take this radical, wonderful, life-changing message to every single nation. Because God has spoken on behalf of all religions. All religious and irreligious people Everywhere He has come to address the issue that religion brings to us. I know what I ought to do, I know what I ought to be, and I'm not able to pull it off. That is the plight of people who are religious. The Apostle Paul wrote in unbelievable detail, really, about Christianity. And in Romans, the book was not written to Jewish people. The book was not 
necessarily written to Christian people. Um, it was written to some, some people just after Jesus was on the earth, and, and Paul wrote this to people who lived in Rome, who had a very Roman way of viewing the world. Um, they had a pantheon of gods. There was a very Greek worldview to the people uh, to whom Paul is writing this letter. And he wrote to some people who had discovered that Jesus had come, uh, not only to be the Savior to the Jews, but to be the Savior of the whole world. And he explains in his very technical, didactic kind of way, like only Paul can do, what it means for Jesus to come and be the Savior and forgiver of all sins. Not simply to one certain group, but the sins of the whole world. So take your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 1. We start by reading this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, if you read through that first sentence, and if, you've got, if you are a person who reads your Bible and circles a lot of things, and no condemnation is not circled in your Bible, shame me on you, because it should be circled, okay? That's like the greatest message in all of Scripture. That should be circled. If, in fact, if you're a Bible reader and that's not circled in your Bible, here's what I know about you. You're in a Bible reading program. And your goal is to get to the end of the verse and to fulfill your obligation to have read your Bible for the day and not necessarily to have your Bible speak to you. Because if you are reading your Bible and you're saying, God, speak to me, when you read, there is now no condemnation, you're going to circle that. Because that's big news. That's huge. There is now no condemnation. Let me explain that for you. That is a legal term. That means that someone has been tried in a court of law, has been found guilty, and has been shipped off to prison. That's what this term means. And as Paul writes this, he says, there is now no condemnation. You are no longer condemned. Your friends may condemn you. You may condemn yourself. Your religion may condemn you. But where Jesus is concerned, there is now no condemnation. You may feel condemned. You may spend the rest of your life trying to make guilt go away. You may have a hard time forgiving yourself. But according to what the Bible says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul says, if you understand the magnitude of this message, if you understand what Jesus has done, then you understand that at the end of the day, you are no longer condemned by God if you are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, because through Christ Jesus, by means of his death and resurrection, through Christ, not human effort, the law of the spirit of life, which could also be read the law of the spirit who gives life. We'll talk about that a little later. The law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. He says there are two laws, and, and here's what they are. First of all, you have the law of the spirit of life. We're going to come back to that. And then the law of sin and death. And thus far in your life, you have been governed by the law of sin and death. Now, everybody listening knows what the law of sin and death is, but I'm going to explain it to you. I'm going to give you a definition. You need to write this somewhere in the margins of your Bible. The law of sin and death is this. When you sin, something dies. That's the law of sin and death. When you sin something dies. When you harm someone with word or deed, the relationship is wounded and sometimes dies. And some of us in this room have killed relationships with things we've said or things we've done, and we've sinned, and the, the relationship died. 
Some of you have killed relationships with parents because somewhere there was a sin and relationship died. A brother-sister, sin happened, relationship died. When you sin, something dies. You don't have to be religious to understand this. You don't have to be a Christian to understand this. This is the law of nature. This is, this is the law of humanity. Sin results in death. And, and all of us have killed some things through our sin. Paul says the law of sin and death is what has driven and contributed to the relationship with God for a long time. It's what's kept you away from God. Just as sin has killed some relationships around you, so your sin may, may have destroyed our relationship with God. It's, it's just a law. It's just the way it is. It's a principle. When you sin, something dies. Nations kill themselves through sins. Cultures kill themselves through sins. Families kill themselves sometimes through sins. But he says the law or principle has been overcome by another law or principle. Now let me see if I can help you understand this a little bit. How many of you have flown in your life? How many of you have been on an airplane and you've flown? You felt that thrust in your back? It's awesome. Love that part. I love sitting there and you, know, and, and you can just tell it's all getting ready to break loose and then you feel the thrust. It's like somebody put their hand in the small of your back and shoving you down the runway, which is actually literally what is happening anyway. But Now let me ask you this question. How many of you believe in gravity? I mean, all you got to do is look at your belly, right? And you believe in gravity. <laughs> so it's like, yep, gravity. There it is. <laughs> I'm a walking, living personification of gravity is what I am. You trip and fall, you believe in gravity. I don't know anybody that doesn't believe in gravity. Yet people who believe in gravity get on an airplane. Now, would you agree with me there's a law of gravity, right? There's a law of gravity. Yet knowing that there's a law of gravity, we get on airplanes. Because if I asked you, jump up and stay up, you can't do that because you can't defy the law of gravity. Somehow, though, I can get you to get on an airplane and fly to another country or another city or another state. So what's going on? Well, what's going on is, we, does that mean when we get on an airplane that the laws of gravity go away? That's not what it means. What happens is there are other laws that supersede the law of gravity, and when we bring those to play on an aircraft, we can overcome the law of gravity, even though all of us in the room would say, no, absolutely, the law of gravity is a real law because I can't jump up and stay up. The law of gravity is a real thing because look at me. You know, the law of gravity is real because I got scrapes on my arm because I fell down when I, when I tripped. Gravity's just as strong as it's ever been when you get on an airplane. It's not like gravity goes away, but you're harnessing a different principle and a different set of laws that overcome the law of gravity. Gravity is just as strong as it ever was. Paul says this, the, the law of sin and death will always be in place as long as we live in the world. That's a given. The law of sin and death, people are going to sin and things are going to die. That's just the way it is. That's what the law of sin and death is. Something, we sin and something dies. But through Christ, a new principle has been introduced, and you can take advantage of it, and not just you, but people of every single religion, if they would understand that they have fallen short of, e even if they just understand that they've fallen short of their own experience, much less God's, but, but to just say, I, yes, I fall short. He calls this the law of the Spirit who gives life. Now, throughout his literature, he talks about this, and here is what the law of the Spirit who gives life is. The law of the Spirit is forgiveness and grace. Forgiveness and grace. Now, hopefully you're writing that down somewhere. 
Now, you've experienced this as well. You, you've killed a relationship maybe with something that you've said or, or through your sin or something that you've done. Some of us have, have almost completely destroyed relationships. And we feel bad about it and we work hard to make amends and we try and give gifts and we try and say the right things and we've written letters and you know, we've, we've tried to do all we can to patch it up and we finally become aware of the fact that we cannot heal a relationship, can we? If you hurt somebody, you can't heal it if you hurt somebody. The only way to get back in relationship with someone that you have hurt is if they give you permission to come back into relationship. And it may be a day after it happened or an hour after it happened or a, a week. It may be a lifetime. They may forgive you on your deathbed. They may forgive you on their deathbed. But until they come to a place where they invite you back into relationship with them, you can do everything in the world to try and get back in relationship. And if they don't want it, it's not going to happen. The law of the spirit of life is this, that God has chosen, not because of anything that you did. That is very important for you to understand. You didn't do anything for God to choose this. You didn't attend enough services. You didn't give enough money. You haven't cleaned up your language well enough. You haven't, you haven't done anything for God to say, okay, that's the line that I needed you to cross. You know, you, you have, if you pick up everybody's trash, I saw a thing this week of a guy that runs a business where it's kind of gross, but I'm going to say it anyway. He picks up his business. Get this. His business is he goes to people who have dogs, and he picks up those dogs' doo-doos in the yard. That's what his business is. How much of that do you have to pick up to make a living at that? I mean, think about that. Here was his motto. We're number one in the number two business. That was his motto. <laughs> I had somebody come out in the first service and she said, I got a great big dog. I need his number. <clears throat> you can do all kinds of things and, and God chose to forgive you, not because you did any of those things. God chose to forgive you because he loves you. You haven't done anything well enough for God to go, I am impressed. <laughs> okay, I'm impressed. You've really, you've gone farther and done more. You've performed in a way that has impressed me. You're not going to impress God that way. The law of the spirit of life is this, that God has chosen, God has chosen to invite you and me, all of us, all nationalities, all faiths, into a relationship with him. Not based on promises kept, not based on, God, I'm going to do better going forward. Not based on his decision to extend forgiveness, but because, because he, that's who he is. That's what he does. He forgives. He's, he's a God of grace. I, I was talking to somebody this week in the office. Here's something for you. The difference, there's a difference between grace and mercy. Mercy is what God withholds that you deserve. That's mercy. It's what you should get that you don't get. Grace is that you get what you don't deserve. So, so and, and I read this, this a week ago, and it was, I, I mean, I've been in the church most of my life, and it's weird. I'm always sometimes the last guy in the room to get it. Maybe you, you're going to hear this and think, well, of course, Brett. But I heard somebody say, it is not God's love that saves you. God's love doesn't save you. God's love drives him to extend to you mercy and grace. Mercy. I don't get what I deserve. Grace, I get exactly what I don't deserve. Religion says you are not good enough to make it on your own. 
And it's a reminder of our need for something different. Verse 3, for what the law, and that's any law, Ten Commandments, single commandment, if you've got, you know, if your religion has 20 commandments, any law, Islamic law, Jewish law, Christian law, it, it, it's, you know, doesn't matter. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. See, the only thing the law can do is condemn you. The law can't save you. If you get pulled over on the way home from church today, which I don't recommend, but if you do, and the guy comes up and writes you a ticket, you can't appeal to some other law to get out of it. I mean, all the law can do is condemn you. The law just tells you, hey, you, you messed that up. For what the law was powerless to do, any law, any religious law, for what the law was powerless to do, God did. If you've got a pen in your hand and you've got your Bible open, you should be circling that right there. Okay? God did. God did. What the law was powerless to do, God did. You've you got to love that. What your own conscience, your own performance, your own ability to do, doesn't matter. For what the law was powerless to do, God did. How did he do it? By sending a, an easier set of rules for us? Did God look at us and say, well, obviously, you know, um, the whole don't lie thing, they're not getting that. So I'm just going to, just don't, don't lie a lot. You know, that's, that's not what God did. God didn't say, you know, we just got to make the list easier. We got to make a list that they can keep. That's not what's going on. Because you and I both know, we, we, we laugh at the idea, the suggestion that God would come up with a sub list. But it's kind of what we do when we say things like, well, you know, nobody's perfect. Or we say, well, you know, it was just a little lie. It wasn't a big lie. It wasn't, wasn't a really bad one. I mean, it was just a little white lie. I was only unfaithful that one time. Religious, non-religious, it, it doesn't matter. You know what goes on inside your heart. You know your own consistent inconsistencies in your heart. N nobody needs to show them to you. Nobody needs to, we don't need to point fingers at anybody. Everybody in this room this morning knows that I, we are not consistent. We know in our hearts we don't measure up. We don't live up to what we want. And our guilt, we, we know our guilt. We know our secrets. We know stuff we don't want anybody else to know. We don't want people to know what we're thinking. And here's what God knows about you, and here's what God knows about me. That you can't get it all sorted out on your own. That, that, that when you're alone with your own thoughts and you start to think about some of the things that you do and some of the things that you want to do and some of the things that you think about doing and you're like, man, you're just messed up. God's like, I know that. And you might have those thoughts, man, you're messed up. How are you going to fix? What's wrong with you? The problem is we don't know what to do. We don't know how to fix it. We, we know something's wrong, but we don't know how to take any steps to do anything about our sin. So consequently, we just dumb down the rules. We just, you know, we start looking for a way to make ourselves feel better. Well, you know, she didn't really deserve for me to be faithful anyway. Or, you know, well, he really wasn't that good of a dad anyway. Well, you know, they, they weren't a good employee anyway. Or, you know, they promised me. They promised me that they would, and they didn't. So I just, so we dumb them down. We, we dumb them down. We, we dumb down the rules so that we can make ourselves feel better about who we are. But we're still guilty. We're still wrong. What the law was powerless to do, 
God did. Here's how he did it. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Not to the Jews, not just to the Romans, not just to Christians, not just to people in the Middle East, but people all around the world. And for sending his son to be the sacrifice for sin, not just Jewish sin or Christian sin, not just the sin of your conscience, all sin, he overcame the law of sin and death for you and for me and has extended the offer of grace and forgiveness to everybody in the world who would choose to receive it. What the law was powerless to do, what religion was powerless to do, what tradition was powerless to do. In other words, one of the things you find out about religious people is they're very tra traditional. They, they believe that if they, they do certain things over and over, God's into that. God's into it when I go to the same place and I go through the same motions all the time. God's into that. That pleases God when I do the same thing all the time. It, it pleases God when I say the exact same prayer all the time. It pleases God when I, when I go through the same motions. And we, we involve ourselves in religious traditions, some of which point us to the cross, point us to Jesus, but they come, like I said last week, we load ourselves up with so much tradition that we think God's into, and God, God's going, you know, I know you think that really does it for me, but that really doesn't do anything for me. Ask yourself this morning on the way home, what do I do that I think God is into that maybe God's just not into? What, what religious traditions have I been taught or what things do I do that really don't matter in my relationship to Jesus at all? Maybe you don't have any. I have a feeling that we would all probably find something there. And you can say, you know what, going forward, I'm going to be perfect. Going forward, I'm going to behave better. But what do I do about my past? For what the law, verse 3, for what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his own son. And I, I want you to get this because this is very valuable information. And so he condemned sin in sinful man. What did he condemn? Sin. Did he condemn sinful man? No. He condemned sin in sinful man. He didn't condemn you. He didn't condemn me. See, one of the things that if people don't go to church, they think... And, and religious people have brought this on themselves. Religious people are made to look like the most judgmental people in the world. And we, we condemn everybody. Jesus didn't condemn people. Do these people condemn you? No. Go your way. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus didn't condemn people. It's amazing to me to watch Christians sometimes and how they talk about other Christians and other people. Because... They're, they're so full of judgment and they're so full and who among us should ever set ourselves up to be that I'm not saying that we you know there's no you have to judge things okay there's a there, we're, we're constantly judging all things but be careful about judging people he condemned sin in sinful man verse 4 in order that the righteous requirements of the law. What were the righteous requirements of the law? The righteous requirements of the law was when I put all that stuff on the screen earlier and we went down the list, no one would have raised their hand on anything. That you would have gone through that list and you'd gone, yep, did that, yep, can do that, yep, can say yes, I've never done that. 
that the righteous requirement of the law is that you be able to look at every one of those things perfectly and say, did them all. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. So if, if, if we're going to say, to be righteous before God, you've got two options. You can either do it God's way or you can do it your way. And your way is you're going to be perfect according to everything we put on the, on the wall. Any takers on that? Anybody want to try and do that for the rest of your life? Perfect? Didn't think so. And God says, there's another way. I can make you righteous. And, and, and pop quiz, what does righteous mean? Right standing with God. So we're going to have a right standing with God. Is it going to be anything that we do? No, it's not anything that we do. God says, I'm going to choose to make you righteous, which is just a fancy way, it's a preacher's way of saying, right standing with God. And God says, I'm going to give you that. The righteousness that would be yours if you kept the law perfectly, if you never made a mistake, every single time, I'm going to give you a right standing with God. You can't earn it, you already know that. You've disappointed yourself, you already know that. And the reason I'm going to give it to you is because I've taken all the consequences of sin and I've put it on Jesus. One of the passages of Scripture that just blows my mind is when, you, is when you read that Jesus went to the cross and there's a passage of Scripture that says He became sin on our behalf. That's heavy. You think about a guy that comes to this planet, lives a perfect life, has people do horrible things to him, forgives them on the cross, prays for forgiveness, forgives them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Became sin. I contend that if we really truly understood sin, if we understood what it does to God, if we understood how it hurts God, if we understood truly the price that was paid for our sin we would not sin nearly as much i'm not saying we'd be perfect but we wouldn't sin nearly as much let me let me put this in perspective for you if you've got kids if you've got kids and you've ever thought to yourself man i wish they could see how when they do that it just kills me when they do that they have no idea when they when they act that way or when they do that thing how it just it hurts me when they do that and I can't get them to see that I wish they would stop. I wish they would change that behavior. It, it, it just kills me when they do that. I think God, much of the time, says, you know what? I don't think, I don't think they understand what their sin's doing. Because it, Christ, my son went to the cross, became sin. Not just for one race, not just for a culture, for everybody. The dilemma of all religion, of Christianity, of all religion is what do I do about me? What do I do about my past? What do I do about my failure? What do I do about my sin? God said, I'll tell you my solution. My solution is I'm, I'm going to send my son, and if you will receive him as your Savior, all your past can be wiped away. And you may face consequences, earthly consequences. Don't miss this, because here's the problem. Your sin affects real people on planet Earth, and they're not God. And they don't forgive as easily. And they don't extend grace as easily. And God says, look, some of the sin that you do on earth is going to come back and haunt you simply because it's done with other people in the mix. I can forgive you. I can extend grace. But everybody else isn't me. 
And everybody else doesn't do that like I do that. So there's always going to be consequences. But I want you to know, I want you to have this as a gift because what the law was powerless to do, God did. The law cannot fix your past. It can only condemn you. Now, religion points to three things. We ought, we don't, and now we're at odds with God. That's, that's religion in a nutshell. We ought, we don't, and now we're at odds with God. Here's what it means for you. Whether you're Baptist or Buddhist or Muslim or you're into some Eastern religion thing, or you're Presbyterian, you're a Hindu, you're none of the above. If you have never accepted the free gift of Jesus on the cross, then you can't be in Christ. And one day you can't stand before God righteous, right standing with God. You can't, unless you, unless you say, if you don't see the cross as a big gift wrap package for you with a bow on it and your name on it that's got forgiveness in it. That's what happened at the cross. God gave you a gift. If, unless you receive that gift, no hope. If you don't see the cross as a beacon of hope, you don't see what the cross is all about. And if you don't ever humble yourself and come to a place where you say, you know what, enough of this me trying to do it. Enough of this me trying to go to church enough times to make God happy. Enough of me trying to, you know, give enough money to some cause or be involved in this or to serve in some way. Enough of that. I can't do all that. God, I, I recognize that what you're doing on that cross through Jesus is for me. That's forgiveness. I want that. That gives me the righteousness of Christ. Man, that is beautiful language. The law condemned me. The law can't save me. And the Bible is so clear. What the law could not do, God has already done by sending his son. So, we got one more sermon in this series. But we're basically coming down to this one idea. That, that, that on your own, and in your power, and you trying to behave good enough, just admit it, you're not that good. And it is beautiful language. It is music to my ears. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That can be you. That can be you. You can be in Christ Jesus. Will you be perfect? No. But here's the beautiful thing. When you stand before God one day and He looks at you, when you go to prayer with all the stuff you've got, how many of you... I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. That's crazy. Brett, don't do that. But when you go in and you're going to pray and you think, man, I don't even think I can pray today after the week I've had. Some of the stuff I've said, and some of the things I've done and seen, I don't think I can. The beautiful thing is that when I go to prayer, God sees a perfect person in front of him. Not because I'm perfect, but because I'm righteous. Because I have the righteousness of Christ. It's a gift that was given to me from the cross. That's what we offer at this church. And if you've never received that, today is your lucky day. We are offering it free. You can come to Christ, and you can know what it is to completely be forgiven. Let's pray together. Father, what a humbling thing. Humbling thing to think about your, your, your love for us drove you to send Jesus. And he comes, he lives a perfect life. He loved people. They crucified him and God when I 
think about the life behind me, the mistakes, selfishness, greed. I mean, the list is just goes on and on. I'm so humbled by the fact that you, A, that you regard me worth saving, and B, that you actually did it. Father, my prayer this morning for everybody in this room is that we would leave this room a little more humble. With a little better understanding of the fact that that our salvation cannot be performance-based. And your love for us is not based on how good we are. Because we can't be that good. But God, humble us as we think about the cross. It is there that we are forgiven, and it is there that we find redemption. It is there that we figure out that all of our efforts and all of our struggles and all of our toil are never going to be enough. That it's you, and it's Jesus, and it's that cross, and it's forgiveness, and it's grace. We love you, God. They're simple, small words, but they're all we've got. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.